Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. anesthesia simulation, our very own doctors Miller and Chiavi, who run our simulation program here at Hopkins and do an incredible job. They travel around the country talking about this stuff. They put a huge amount of work into optimizing our program here and helping others do the same. And they have done a lot of work in terms of research on this as well. We're going to try to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about what happens behind the scenes and how you might go about putting together a simulation program of your own and why you might want to do that. So I'm really excited to talk to them. Adam and Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's start out with um, why do we think that uh, this is important? You know, people out there who may not have a lot of exposure to SIM or who may have thought about it but think there's a high barrier to entry. Why is it important to be able to use simulation in anesthesia? Well, I, I that's a great question. One of the things that I, I do think is important is we constantly are talking to people about simulation and we get questions a lot and talk individually to residents, right? And they're always very interested in, well, how do you do what you do? Or why is it important? That sort of thing. And then you have this conversation with this person and all of a sudden their eyes, their eyes light up and they're like, oh my God, I had no idea that all of this stuff goes into it. And then it's like converting people one, one at a time to this way of thinking that experiential learning can actually help you, right? And then when people understand a little bit more, I think it makes them a little bit better at being a simulation or an experiential learner. And so that's one of the, the, the main reasons why we thought doing the podcast in the first place would be helpful because every single time we individually talk to people, they're just thrilled about it. And so, um, you know, you know, gives a good reason for uh, wanting to, you know, distribute these ideas a little bit. So why, why is simulation and experiential learning important to begin with? One of the main things is we, we really want people from a very early stage in their anesthesia career to be able to acquire new skills very quickly. Um, and doing this experientially in the Sim Center allows us to create uh, simulated high stakes and get people to come in and perform and do something like that. Uh, so most of the time in the OR, uh, things are just fine, right? And very rarely do you actually run into big problems. And uh, we sort of pick up crisis management on the fly, like, oh, well, did you have a crisis today in the OR? Well, that is random, and real life is random, and we don't want people to necessarily have a random approach to learning how to do these things, and so we take the experiences of a few people, maybe, and give that to everyone so that they can learn how to do it. This is more of a uh, instinctual uh, modification where it's a learned skill. You can learn how to do it, but we're teaching people how to run into the fire earlier so that they can become more confident in their ability to do it. And then that builds over the course of their residency career. So Adam, I think those are all great points. And it seems like we're taking things that happen relatively infrequently and things that faced with doing them once or twice, someone might not have a lot of skill because you're not going to get to practice them a lot. And you're really focusing and having an organized training process around those things so that when they happen in real life, people are much more capable of dealing with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, it's very important when these things do happen that you have learned already how to manage your emotions when it does happen. And it's probably not the first time you've ever seen it before. And so pre-training a little bit to, to being able to do that, to switch from everything is fine to all of a sudden everything's not fine and I need to be the team leader and be calm and organize it and save a person's life at the same time, all of that stuff. How do you train yourself to flip that switch and then act instinctually? That's why this is such an important thing because it gives us the opportunity to do that for everybody early on 
so that they can build on those experiences throughout their residency instead of just one or two people who happen to see something uh, interesting or tragic in the you know in the early part of their residency. Right. Yeah, we're, well, we're finding that um, opportunities to practice some even common skills are are more and more limited uh, than they once were. And patient safety is a huge factor in that because um, we want to take, you know, the training and the teaching away away from things that can affect actual patients. But um, we're also dealing with uh, increased emphasis on efficiency and revenue generation um, in our specialty restriction on work hours. Uh, a broader sort of variety of skills that the ACGM, ACGME is requiring that residents um, graduate with. So they're doing different types of, of rotations that are out of the OR and out of this sort of sort of crisis management. Um, but um, not only that, you know, as Adam was saying, there there are sometimes things that only occur infrequently, and we can give everybody the opportunity to practice them. We have um, an orientation uh, simulation curriculum that we do for our first-year residents. One of the scenarios is bronchospasm. And afterwards, one of the residents came up to me after, after the scenario and said, you know, um, I, have to, I have to tell you that I cheated on this scenario. And I thought, well, what do you mean? Like, where, where did you get the playbook from, you know? Who's um, talking? And, uh, and he said, you know, um, I had this happen to me with a patient this morning with my attending and my co-resident and I with the attending went through the management of bronchospasm and we reviewed how to treat it and we managed it in real time and, you know, the patient did well. And I said, well, that's, that's not cheating, but I just wish I could have every resident get that experience and it's not possible to orchestrate in a clinical setting. But with simulation, we do have the ability to create something similar for everybody so that they get they get the feeling of diagnosing it, the time pressure of treating it, you know, and, and a little bit of um, that that sort of OR, OR milieu and the, the team aspects of, um, of managing, a, you know, a crisis or, or just just a, an event in the operating room. Yeah. So in other words, we kind of want to flip it around where we want everyone to quote unquote cheat because we want them to have had bronchospasm in the sim center so that when it happens in real life they think gee i cheated i already know how to deal exactly with this. exactly a dress rehearsal for real life right right love that okay so lots of reasons why why this is really important um what do we know about the data behind this i mean it's as you you all are, are really experts on this we're not just saying hey we like sim it's fun right i mean there's actually reason to think there's good support for this tell us a little bit about that yeah so um just in terms of um healthcare in general, um, you know, there are many, many studies. And in uh, 2011, Cook uh, et al. did a, a, a meta-analysis in JAMA, um, and it looked at 600 studies with 35,000 healthcare trainees. And what they demonstrated was that technology-enhanced simulation compared to no intervention at all demonstrated a large effect for knowledge, skills, and behaviors. Um, and moderate effect for patient-related outcomes, which is, of course, this is this is the the prize that everybody has their eye on. We want to be able to demonstrate that this time-consuming, expensive uh, investment in education that we're doing with simulation education is actually going to benefit our patients down the road. Um, so this was this showed a good effect uh, just in general healthcare trainees compared to no intervention, but also. They did a follow-up study, the same authors, what about compared to other teaching methods, with another meta-analysis that showed, um, you know, looked at 92 studies and demonstrated a small uh, to positive effect for satisfaction outcomes, knowledge, skills, behavior, and patient effects. Now, that's general health care. In anesthesia specifically, um, there was a study published in the British Journal of Anesthesia, in uh, this by the authors Lorello in um, 2013. And this meta-analysis was specific to anesthesiology and showed that simulation-based training was effective compared to no intervention, but also compared with non-simulation instruction, things like computer learning, lectures, uh, PBLD, problem-based learning, um, videos, but there were more variable results and sometimes the effects were smaller in this case. We have, you know, uh, probably at this point, hundreds of sort of anecdotal um, reports from residents that we've worked with where they've felt like simulation training has been beneficial in a clinical setting. But it's, it's really difficult to study that and pin that down. Um, 
in uh, 2010, Christine Park published a study um, that showed residents, this is anesthesia specific again, residents who had high fidelity simulation training on a specific topics, for, for instance, like hypoxia, they performed better than their peers when they were subsequently evaluated using simulation on that topic versus another topic, like for instance, hypotension. So it so simulation can improve performance in simulation, but does this transfer to actual patients, again, is the question. Um, there is a case report, um, and, and we've sort of heard multiple anecdotes, but again, this is difficult to publish, but there is a published case report of uh, a trainee who had gotten some um, uh, training on recognizing and treating, treating local anesthetic toxicity from bupivacaine, and then was able to apply that in a real clinical situation. And then a little bit more broadly, um, there's another study in anesthesiology from 2010 um, that demonstrated that cardiac anesthesia fellows who received training on weaning from cardiac bypass with high fidelity simulation versus an interactive seminar, which was the, the standard, the people who had simulation training performed better at two and five weeks in the actual process of weaning real patients from cardiac by bypass, according to blinded observers. Um, and then finally, one more study, and this is just a sampling of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies that are out there. Um, another example that I like to use is um, residents who performed a warm-up fiber optic intubation on a mannequin just prior to doing it on a live patient reduced their time to successful intubation. They had fewer desaturations and they had a higher global performance score than residents that performed the the procedure, so to speak, cold. Um, and there was greater improvement that they saw for CA1 residents compared to CA2s, indicating that like this process is probably particularly effective for novices, people who are at the point where they are still mastering and cementing their skill set uh, versus um, uh, residents who've had more experience. That's very cool. I, I mean, I love that idea. I actually what, didn't know about that study, but I love the idea of a warm-up. I mean, if you think about professional sports, right, nobody goes up to the plate in baseball without having both done pre-game warm-up and then also taking some swings right before coming right. up. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense if you're doing something that is um, a procedure, uh, and it may apply to, to cognitive things too, but certainly a procedure. It makes sense that, that going through it once to remind yourself of the twists and turns and how the thing works, especially if you're not. I mean, all that makes a ton of sense. So there is good support for sure for learner preference, for this being an effective way to learn and performance, and even some, as you said, for patient outcomes, which, which as you mentioned, is really the gold standard. Um, great. All right. So there, there is good evidence for this, and I'm sure a lot more, as you said, out there and a lot more underway. What about different types of simulation, right? I mean, I think a lot of us think simulation is just simulation, right? You just do it, but there, it's more nuanced than that, right? So, so uh, tell us a little bit about the different types of simulation that are out there and, and what the differences are. Right, so we define simulation in this sort of medical arena um, as a, a situation where the learner has some sort of physical interaction with an educational tool or device. Um, and this experience is meant to reflect an aspect of clinical care. And this can be done for teaching or for assessment. So we talk about summative versus formative types of evaluations. So formative is for the learner. It's for the person who is going to be, who, it's, a, it's a teaching process that they get, they get feedback, which is meant to help them develop and evolve and um, such that they can reflect on, on their performance and then um, in a self-directed way, improve their learning process versus summative, which is more of an evaluative process. And the vast majority of the simulation that we do here is formative, but you can use it for um, a, a test or an exam of sorts where you are using simulation to see if the, if the performer is you know, meeting their metrics, is, has demonstrated competency, those sorts of things. And that's in a, a more sort of high stakes, like pass or fail um, evaluative situation. So um, those are the sort of the, the, the two major types of ways that simulation is used. But um, we can use simulation, or I should take a step back. Um, 
so, so simulation can take many forms. Sometimes we have a partial task trainer that's just used for teaching how to intubate or play central lines. Um, we can have uh, a variety of degrees of fidelity, high, low fidelity, like a task trainer, moderate fidelity, where there's some sort of feedback or scenario um, that is uh, sort of reflecting a clinical situation, or high fidelity, where we're really focused on the physiologic changes of the mannequin, but there are also embedded actors and a whole um, milieu of, of people in the operating room, and we're testing things, not only diagnosis and treatment of medical problems, but also communication and team skills within the operating room. Um, and then Beyond just mannequin plastic trainers, uh, sometimes we there's a um, uh, a place for human hybrid trainers where you might have a conversation with a standardized patient, but then perform a procedure on the plastic mannequin. So we use standardized patients or standardized actors, uh, not necessarily for procedures, of course, but um, for patient interviews, uh, sometimes for physical examination. Um, but what we're testing, we're teaching here is the uh, professional skills, communication skills, interpersonal uh, development. Great. All right. So there are a variety of ways to approach this, different types. And, you know, I think people aren't going to obviously learn all the different pieces of each one. But I think it's just important to know that there's a variety of ways to do it. And, and you can go from, as you said, low fidelity to high fidelity and, and kind of different approaches. All right, before we move on, Adam, when I was talking before about this kind of gold standard of uh, patient outcomes, you, you, I noticed you you looked like you wanted to say something and we didn't get to, but I want to come back to you now. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so there's a lot of studies, a lot of data out there that shows that it's good. And of course, the gold standard is always, does it change patient outcomes, right? Patient safety, patient outcomes, are we saving more lives? Are we you know, having better outcomes in general for patients? Uh, I personally think that's the wrong question to be asking because I don't think that any individual educational program or any individual educational method for um, teaching specifics to individuals or practice in professionalism, any of that kind of stuff, unless you're doing it on a very, very large scale, can actually affect this patient outcome idea. I mean, we have the, the whole infrastructure of medicine that is changing patient outcomes, and we're talking about a what is essentially a microscopic sliver of this big medicine machine. And why would anybody have enough hubris to say, oh, my program or the way I teach this specifically is going to change outcomes? I'm not even sure you could say that with the whole method of simulation. So that's the wrong question. I think the right question is, are we changing the hearts and minds of the physicians that are going through this training such that they interface with the machine of medicine and ultimately change patient outcomes because of it. Now, it's possible sometime in the future when simulation has become much more mainstream that we can actually do some sort of an assessment about that and look at various uh, aspects of people that have had this type of training or not. Uh, but I don't think we're there yet. And, and we really need to focus on the techniques of how you do this, how does experiential learning help people study it, looking at all the psychology and the cognitive science that goes into it, optimize it, and then work on trying to standardize it at, at more of a, a broader scope, national level, international level, I don't know, whatever it might be. But it's not like we're treating diabetes and you give people insulin and they get better. That's patient outcomes. This is way, way more granular than that. And so... Uh, so you're saying, for example, um, let's say that we can show that by putting people through a certain you know, set of simulations, they have uh, less stress or they are more comfortable in a given environment or in a given situation in the operating room, that would be an important outcome. And that then yes. if we can do that and get enough practicing anesthesiologists feeling like they can be comfortable when things go crazy and when there's a crisis, then that may well improve outcomes for patients, but that's down the road. Right. I mean, a perfect. that's a great example. In the OR, we can get somebody to respond to a desaturation of oxygen maybe 15 seconds faster. Okay, great. It may help this particular patient, but are you going to be able to measure this on a global scale? No, but you can measure this physician can do it quicker. This physician is going to have better outcomes in general because they are acting in an instinctual way and over the course of their career, 
if they help one or two people in their 15 to 30 year uh, uh, career, well, then we've actually changed something for that physician and those two patients. You change outcome for the individual, but are you changing outcomes on the global scale on a population basis? That is the wrong question. Sure. And I, I think we'd all agree if you can show it, that's great. But what you're saying is if we hold simulation to that requirement, then it may not be doable and then we may not support sim where we should. Exactly. And, and, and I believe that there was a grant, a very large grant out there for a number of years, millions of dollars, that was specifically for, can you show changes in patient outcomes from simulation? I believe the grant went unfunded because nobody could figure out how to do it. And it emphasizes the point a little bit. It's interesting, too, when you think about uh, aviation, where obviously they use simulation all the time, that, um, you know, the idea that if you could show a reduction in plane crashes with simulation, that would be great. But it's such a rare event that, you know, and you're not, you certainly aren't going to take some some pilots and not do, do it and other pilots and do it and see who has the most plane crashes. So at some point, it doesn't hold up necessarily. But your point is well taken. All right, let's 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 move to thinking about how we set this up. What makes a good SIM participant? What do we want from our learners who are going through SIM so that they can get the most out of it? Yeah, so this this is a very, very important aspect. You can't just say you're going to learn by simulation and just expect somebody to jump in and be able to do it. You, That's not the expectation of what learners expect. What, what do most learners want to do? When we just came through med school, you sat in a classroom for the first two years. You finished college where you sat in a classroom for four years and uh, you know, had just recently started having experiential learning on the wards in real life. And, of course, all the chaos that goes along with it and very variation in learning opportunities. But you have to change. To be a good SIM participant, you have to change your mindset a little bit. You have to buy in to the process. You have to suspend your disbelief that what you're doing is working on a plastic man and think about it as I'm doing this for real because it's the only way you're gonna be able to walk away with an experience that can be meaningful and continue to build a foundation of learning and expertise, right? And so you have to come in willing to learn with an open mind. It's an active participation aspect of it. The learner really is an active participant. It's not just about coming into the environment and us putting on a show for you that you learn from. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that is a terrible way to do this. You have to buy in. You have to be a part of the show for it to actually work. And I, I say this all the time to our, uh, our learners here. Uh, you only walk away from sim with what you're capable of bringing to the table. And if you can't come in and behave the way you would normally behave in this environment, you're not going to you're not going to have the best experience, and it may compromise your learning. So a good sim participant has to be somebody who is willing to suspend their disbelief, wants to be there, is willing to expose themselves a little bit, and, and frankly, be a little bit of an unsuspecting actor in, in, in the show that's, that's being put on. This really makes me think about performance versus learning-centered uh, kind of orientations, right? Um, because, uh, you know, it's really important, like you said, to suspend disbelief and to really engage uh, and see it as real and do the best you can to, to kind of put yourself in that world. But if you are someone who cares only about the performance and the grade, which uh, let's be honest, a lot of us in medicine are, then it may be hard to do that because you're, you're really trying to figure out how to, how to get it rather than explore, well, this is a real case. Maybe nothing's going to happen. I should just treat this like I would any case. And then when something happens, I react like I would rather than the mindset of, okay, I know this is sim, I know something's going to happen, and I, I might be judged based on how I react, so I have to figure out what it is, right? Because you don't do that in a real case. But, and so doing it in sim can kind of short-circuit, I think, the learning a little bit. But, but talk a little bit about that. I mean, what, what kind of mindset do we really want from our learners to, to maximize? It, it really is about the journey. It's not about the outcome. In, in real life, that's very frequently true. In simulation, it's almost always true. You can get the answer, but that's just a cheat code. Right? You're, you can get the, the cheat code and circumvent the entire process and the journey of how you actually get to the, the end of the event, but you, but you don't really learn anything about it. And so going through the experience, having the physical and emotional uh, 
aspects of it that are associated with the event help cement the schemas that are forming in your brain about how you do something, not only about learning how you do it and what you do to accomplish the goal, but what's your emotional state when it's happening? How am I managing my own emotions? How am I acting uh, professionally or not with my colleagues? And so uh, you, you have to think about all of that and, and understand that that's really the point. It's not about the answer. We can make the answer be anything we want. So if the answer is completely variable, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters in this type of education is, is really the journey through it. Right. I think, I think a good sim participant also is somebody that's willing to have a little bit of vulnerability, that it's okay to make a mistake. You have to get in there and screw up a little bit. And I see sometimes residents are um, reluctant to do something because they don't know what to do. And I say, just do something, do anything. If you don't know what to do, try it. Nobody's going to get hurt. We'll play it out. We'll see what the response is. We'll talk about it in debrief. We'll talk about other solutions. We'll talk about other possibilities. But do something so that you can see the impact of your action and you can at least learn what that does. And um, I think sometimes uh, participants don't, don't want to look bad. They don't want to look foolish. They want to avoid consequences. But as Adam was saying, this is about the journey. So we have, for instance, um, a scenario on malignant hyperthermia, and it's an orthopedic injury that the patient has. And I'll see groups of, of uh, sim participants try and work every way around this. They know what's coming, and they'll try and do this under regional with sedation and a block or you know, other creative solutions to avoid, avoid giving volatile anesthetic. We're going to do TiVo. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And at some point, I just come over the microphone and say, look, look guys, I'm going to come in there and push the sucks myself because the point of this is to learn how to identify and manage malignant hyperthermia. So we have to have the trigger. It has to be introduced somewhere. You can introduce it, I can introduce it, but it's going to happen. We're all going down this path together. Right. Obviously we want to prevent hyperthermia from happening, but if you never learn how to manage it, you right. never can manage it. So, and that's, I love that example because it's such a great example of, you know, if you're the learner and you think, okay, this, I figured it out. This is going to be a malignant hyperthermia, you know, uh, sim. And the way to get the, the A+, plus, the way to get the grade, right. is to not give to a triggering anesthetic. never get in trouble. So I'm not going to do it. And then you don't do it, so you don't learn, right? So it's this self-defeating. But that's the performance mindset, yeah. as opposed to the learning mindset, which says, I hope I make a mistake, because that will be a way for me to learn, and this is the place to do it. Now, a lot of this also is on the teachers, right? Because we have to make it clear to the learners, in this case our residents, that we're not judging them. That, like you said earlier, Christina, this is formative. And so this is for them. That's a hard message to get across, but I think we have to keep pounding it in, which I know you guys do to our residents, is to say, this is for you. We are not judging you. If you make a mistake, it is just for your own learning. And that's so key. But, you know, any, any thoughts on how we just drive that home? Yeah, we have to keep people safe in this environment. We're asking people to do something that they may not be comfortable with. Just like in real world. I mean, we do things all the time in real life, in the OR and ICU, wherever it is, that make us uncomfortable. But we got to do it anyway. Well, let's take that and bring it into the simulated environment and practice that. Because, again, it's a learned skill, right? You can learn how to do this. So you have to make it a safe space. And, and if you're asking people to expose themselves, they have to feel confident that nothing bad is going to happen to them or their patients or the people around them, you know, that sort of thing. So... We, we do this partially through a confidentiality agreement. And we, we say um, what happens in the simulation center, what happens during your event is confidential. It will never be discussed outside of this event, except with you or with your permission to, you know, to bring it out for an educational purpose or some other reason why we would do it. Um, and that creates a space that they can feel confident that they can make a mistake and not have consequences for it. And so nobody's gonna get hurt here. You're not gonna get hurt. You can expose yourself. You can screw something up. That's fine. In fact, that's probably the best way that you're gonna learn something. And if uh, no, no patients get harmed in the process, great. As opposed to the old days where, how did you learn those things? Well, sometimes maybe a patient got hurt and you learned something. Right. And that's one of the things we're trying to avoid. Now, the other thing, 
about this is when we're asking people to do this, we're also asking them to expose their emotions, to be vulnerable, not only physically, but mentally too. And uh, when people's emotions get exposed out there, we have to be very sensitive to that and emphasizing over and over that this is not judgmental, that if, if you screw something up and you feel bad about it because you're concerned about how you may perform in the real world, you have to be able to manage that. And the teachers have to be able to coach people through this and to roll it back a little bit, do it again, such that when they leave, they've done it correctly so that they can have some confidence that in the real world they may be able to do it. Um, and so the exposure of emotions, uh, nobody, nobody likes to have all that stuff out. Nobody needs to see all that, right? But we make it safe enough so that you can have that experience and really behave and act the way you normally would. Because really the goal here is instinctual modification in physical actions, but in emotional actions too. And if you can get somebody to act the way they normally would, physically and emotionally, and then have a conversation about that, you have self, the learner has some self realization, some self actualization, and can actually tweak that instinct a little bit and say, you know, I, I reacted this way, or I did that instinct. I'm not sure why I did it that way, but I did. But now I recognize that that's my tendency. And only then can you actually modify the way a person is going to react to something. You can't do it for them as a teacher. You have to expose it in the learner and let them see it in themselves so that they can modify it themselves. And that's only possible in this system of safety that we're talking about through the confidentiality agreement. All right, stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Drs. Miller and Shiavi. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. All right, we're back with Drs. Miller and Shiavi. All right, so... Let me ask you, you know, obviously you guys have been, you spent years and years perfecting your SIM technique. So we're not going to be able to impart all of that knowledge in a short podcast. But if you had to give people just some kind of important things you've learned that you would recommend they keep in mind as they are either building or developing their own SIM program, what would you say? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think that, well, I work with junior residents a lot, and what we're trying to do is establish some foundational basics for them, particularly in the beginning of their training. Um, and I use a, a, an analogy that I like. It's my mac and cheese analogy. So everybody knows what macaroni and cheese is, right? We all have some concept of what that's going to be like, and there are subtle variations on that. You know, you can have this sort of bechamel sauce with truffle oil, or you can put a panko crust on it, or you can make it with vegan cheese or gluten-free, but we all have a concept of what macaroni and cheese should look like as its outcome. And when we're talking to um, novice trainees who don't necessarily have that broader picture, I think that experts can tend to get lost in the details and they can focus on this nuance before they realize that the person they're talking to has a broader sense of what we're talking about. And so our focus has been on very, very basic sort of safe standard techniques uh, that anybody can use as a foundational platform and then they can build on it. In, in other words, you know, we have to start with the fact that this is a, a, a boiled macaroni process with some sort of creamy cheese sauce and sometimes that means breaking things down into a number of really basic steps. Sometimes it means um, teaching something in a way that's not actually the way that we do it in real life as experts, but is a way that we can communicate to uh, residents or other trainees who have not done this before what the, what the basic steps are and how they can assemble those into a sequence and then what sort of things that they can modify later when they become more comfortable with that. Yeah, it's like we're, we're trying to get people to figure out where is the kitchen? How do you boil the water? You, you, can't, you can't make a panko crust with parsley and truffle oil if, if you don't have macaroni and cheese in the first place. 
And so it, it, it really is a big challenge because we deal, and all of our trainees deal with such incredible people, such amazing experts who have been in the field of anesthesia or critical care or whatever it might be for years and years and years and developed this extreme confidence and expertise in their abilities to do something. But that's their expert method of doing it. And they've developed that over the years. And you can try to teach that to a person, but if they have no context, if they have no platform to, to hang that on, they, it goes right over the head and they completely miss it. And so we think about, specifically for training novices, um, or anybody, I mean, a novice isn't just a junior resident. A novice is even a senior person who is learning something for the first time, right? This is, the, the novice is, is, is not unique to just being junior. Um, but we think about what we call a standardized platform of experiential learning. We like to call it a spell, right? And so this establishes, again, like Christina said, not the way I do it, but a way that you can do it, that gives you a foundation such that when you interact with an expert, you actually have some context to possibly learn something real from that person and then uh, build your own expertise from that point forward. We have a whole bunch of examples of this. Um, and it's not that when we see them in the future, like the novice learns something using one of these ideas, and then a year later we uh, see them again and watch what they're doing. I don't expect that they're doing it the way we taught them. I want to see how they took that and built upon it and developed their own set of expertise, whether it be intubation skills or how you manage something or your personal system of safety, whatever it might be, how is that growing? But you had something at the very beginning to be able to do it. And, and how do you actually do something like that? I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm playing you now. I'm asking myself the question, <laughs> how do you actually set something like that up? Come back to the sports analogy that you gave before. Um, you gave a sports analogy before. Right? Yeah, we were talking about warming up. Yeah, yeah. Warming up. So, uh, and again, in sports, how can you get somebody to learn a complex motion or a complex thought process combined with emotion or something? You, you can break it down into its individual components. You deconstruct whatever the thing is, and then teach each of those aspects, each of these components, as a unique thing in and of itself, using whatever humor, anecdotes, you know, physical comedy, anything you want to do to get them to understand that specific breakdown point. And then you move to the next one, then the next one, then the next one. And then you practice in a deliberate practice kind of way where you cycle through it over and over and over again. First, it's really choppy, each individual thing. And then as they do it more, they get smoother at it and they get much better at it, just like a golf swing. Uh, Christina likes to make fun of me because I have uh, a book uh, called... Um, swing like a pro and it takes the golf swing and literally breaks it down into a hundred individual steps and uh, that sort of it, it helped it helped me to think about well okay fine this is how you can teach a, a golf swing to anyone and i actually learned how to do the golf swing from this and practiced all 100 steps until i could swing a golf club and got to be pretty good at it pretty quick well we can do the same thing with how do you operate the anesthesia machine in a desaturation? How can you do direct laryngoscopy in a way uh, that's ergonomic and makes you strong so that you can um, you know, be efficient at doing it you know, well, breaking down these individual components such that it becomes very natural and very um, effortless uh, as, you, as you build on it. But it's not the way I intubate somebody. Right. I watch, I watch people uh, learning how to do um, flexible bronchoscopy and everybody wants to drive at 100 miles an hour, you know, right out, right out of the gate. And you just have to tell people, you know, slow down. At some point, you know, you're going to be a master and this is going to be this, you know, slick movement where you just like navigate the airways and get to where you want to be effortlessly. And it's going to be smooth and it's going to be like you're just, you know, skiing down a black diamond slope. But right now you have to come back to something you recognize, focus on it, reorient your scope advance a little bit, reorient, advance a little bit, reorient, recenter, and make sure that you are moving slowly and deliberately in a stepwise fashion before you get to the point where you can just, you know, advance and, and um, you know, effortlessly sort of glide into the position that you want to be in. Yeah. It, it makes me think about, you know, if you're trying to memorize, you name it, a long poem, a speech, you know, whatever it is, 
you can't really just try to read the entire, you know, five page thing over and over and over and over. You have to break it up. You memorize the first couple paragraphs, then you add another one, go back and do all three, then you add another one, do all four, right? And so it's the same thing, right? You can't you can't take a big complex procedure or concept and learn it all at once. You need to break it up, learn the pieces, and then put them together. It makes a ton of sense. Well, it unloads your mind so that you can actually focus on the detail for this step. Um, and then be able to integrate that into the into the next thing. Yeah, one of the things that we're um, extremely cognizant of and interested in from an educational research perspective at this point is cognitive load. Um, so when learners are processing new information, the working memory is limited. And cognitive load theory says that if this limit is surpassed, information is not assimilated into long-term memory and learning is impaired. So we have to break things down because there's only so much we can handle at one time. The average telephone number is seven digits because they determine that's how many digits people can keep in their mind. The average person can keep in their mind and, and not forget. Um, so cognitive load, um, one of the ways that we look at this, there's a there's a graphic called the, the Yerkes-Dodson curve, which describes this. And so um, on the x-axis, you have uh, arousal or stress or stimulation. And on the y-axis, you have performance. And this essentially looks like a bell curve. What this means is that if this level of stimulation, the difficulty of the task is not high enough, learners are disinterested and they don't engage. And if it's too high, they become overwhelmed and they can't assimilate or process new information. And so what we are constantly trying to do is find the peak of that curve, this sort of, I call it the catecholamine sweet spot, that we've stressed them enough so that they're engaged, that they're interested, that they can suspend disbelief and forget that they're dealing with a plastic man. And think about this as a real environment and a real clinical situation and become emotionally invested in it such that they are seeking a problem and are trying to work through it, but not so much that we've overwhelmed them and they, they're just completely checked out because they um, can't process everything that's happening. I, I can interject a little bit there. Take that idea and then think about being in the OR. You can't optimize this in the OR. It, the, the randomness of real life says you're, you're, the likelihood of landing at the sweet spot very, very small. And it's the difference between working through something challenging and building your confidence and abilities to do it in a stressful environment that helps cement it and learning how to operate under stress versus getting hip checked out of the way by your attending in the OR. And this is a this is a key point. And this is how how cognitive load theory actually influences our ability to optimize learning for individuals in the sim center. And I think Christina's got more to say about that. Yeah, we can we can optimize the amount of um, time pressure. We can optimize the the physiologic the extremes of the physiologic derangements. We can manipulate these things such that either they become easier to notice for the person who's just beginning versus less subtle, or that we give them more or less time to deal with a with a problem before the patient starts to decompensate. And we can ratchet that level of intensity up and down and sort of tailor it to the individual learner. Now, in order to do that, some of that's by intuition, just by watching how people perform and how they react. Um, but one of the other things that we're doing is also measuring cognitive load with self-reported surveys, self-reported measures afterwards. We need validated instruments in order to do that. For example, uh, the NASA TLX is, uh, or Task Load in Index is an instrument um, that the space program uses to test new devices, to test new gadgets. They determine uh, if people who are using them feel frustrated, if there's a lot of physical uh, burden associated with it, if there's a lot of time temporal or time pressure associated with doing the task. And these tasks um, are specific for what NASA is trying to achieve. It's more about using a tool and determining whether it's um, whether it's optimized or not. But we need specific instruments in uh, medical simulation, and those tools may be different. So we're working on developing some of those tools and 
and validating them so that we can more uh, accurately determine what a, a trainee or a learner's um, cognitive load might be in a simulation scenario. And there are three components that we're thinking about. One is intrinsic cognitive load, and that's inherent to task difficulty. And it has to do with the learner's prior knowledge um, and how much experience they've had doing this type of thing. And we want to um, design scenarios that are matched to the level of that the learner is at. So we don't want things to be too difficult or too easy. And the scenario design and the number of things that we expect them to do or perform, that has to do with intrinsic load. The second component is extraneous load. And this is something that is a, a, something we generally want to minimize. It's imposed by ineffective instructional design. So lack of familiarity with the learning environment, distractions, unclear instructions, other elements that are not critical to learning the task, things that interfere with what our learning goals are. And what we want to do is design simulations where this is minimized. And then the third component, perhaps the most important that, that we're looking at is germane load. And this results from the processing and construction of schemas. What I mean by that is how you interpret this new information and then reorganize it in your mind so that you can assimilate it from your working memory into your long-term memory. And this enables the transfer of knowledge into uh, something that you can, you can store and that you can use in the future, and we want to promote this. Great. All right. So this is really important in, in a way to measure, you know, kind of optimization of the sim experience. Um, one thing that we touched on before, but let's touch, let's go back to it, that is really crucial is the debrief, the feedback afterwards, right? So you can't just have the sim and then, and then say, great to see you, right? You really need to drive home the learning and, and do that debrief. So talk a little bit about that and its importance. Yeah, there's a landmark article by Savile Deli uh, where they had three arms to the study. They did simulation and then there was nothing that was followed up with it. And then they did simulation with a verbal debrief. And then the third arm was simulation with a video assisted debrief. So participants, you know, watched themselves perform as part of the debrief. And then they measured learning afterwards and in a follow-up. And what they found was that there wasn't much difference between the verbal, um, the verbal debrief versus the video assisted debrief. Both of them were about the same and demonstrated that there was retention of information, but they were both higher than the simulation with no debrief at all, which showed virtually no information retention. So we know that this is the part where everybody sort of steps away from the physiologic pressure of the simulation and has an opportunity to assimilate what they've learned, ask questions, reflect on their performance, think about alternate possibilities, what they could have done, what they did well, what they could have done better, um, and how they would do this again in the future if they were to encounter something similar. And so the debrief process is really, really critical. Um, we try and permit about half the time of any given scenario for debrief. And it's meant to be sort of an open-ended conversation that's bi-directional between the debriefer and the, and the simulation participant who's being debriefed. Um, it's a meant to uh, create a safe space where the person doesn't doesn't feel judged, um, where they can expose vulnerability, where perhaps emotion comes out because sometimes these are very stressful situations. Sometimes uh, we have we simulate a negative outcome, um, so that they they can sort of deal with those things and have have the opportunity to explore those feelings, reflect on their performance, get some more information about. Uh, what the simulation was about and how how they would approach a similar situation moving forward. Yeah, so really, really crucial with any kind of learning, and, and definitely, as you said, both both because we would it would make sense, but also supported by the literature with with um, simulation, and soon to be supported by even more literature, unpublished data. I'll let the cat out of the bag okay. for all of those who are following us on the uh, cognitive load circuit. Um, we actually. Uh, do have some uh, data that's uh, currently in manuscript and preparation that specifically looks at the cognitive load pre and post debrief and show uh, somewhat definitively that the germane aspect, the part where you actually transfer this stuff to long-term memory so that you can use it in the future effectively, 
is enhanced specifically by debrief. So yeah. you'll, you'll see that coming out. Great. We'll keep an eye out for it. That's great. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> All right. So um, what advice uh, do you have for applicants, let's say, who are looking at residency programs, you know, uh, in terms of looking at the simulation that might or might not be happening there? Yeah, I think uh, for anybody who is looking at residencies and in your in your listening uh, population here, uh, if you're thinking about uh, residencies and trying to determine which type of residency you want to go to, obviously you have to think about what's going to be right for you, but also consider that simulation uh, is offering so much more and so much more variety and exposure to things that you may not get otherwise, that you may happen to come across at some point in your residency versus not. And so I think that as part of a, a bigger picture, that simulation is going to become more and more important as more people get on board with this and are doing it. And I think that people looking for residencies should really try to identify, if that's what they're looking for, if that's not what you care about, that's fine. But if you're looking for that kind of thing, to specifically seek out programs that have a robust simulation program, not just from an educational point of view, but uh, from an experiential point of view, so that you can get a complete experience at the end. Ask questions when you're on your interviews. Do you do simulation? How do you uh, control for uh, rare events in the OR? Things like that. And what are you doing about the randomness of real life, so to speak? Uh, and so it, it, I think that in considering a residency program, the fact that they either do have or don't have a simulation program um, as a major part of their educational curriculum uh, should be a consideration for sure. Um, I think you should ask questions about what type of simulation they do and how much they get. We're very fortunate here that we do a ton of it and it is a big part of our curriculum. We have the opportunity to do that for many reasons. I know not everybody gets, to, not all places get to do that, but still you should ask questions about that and then how integrated is it? Is it something that's just a, oh yeah, and we do simulation too, in quotes, uh, or is it something that is taken seriously and have people that are true experts in it actually working it to make sure that you derive good experiences from it? These are all very important questions, I think, that need to be asked of all residencies uh, these days because this, this is the future for many different reasons, yeah. and uh, we, we want to try and help uh, promote that yeah. or promote that culture. And I think, you know, for, for people out, faculty out there, you know, if you're, if you're a part of a program that doesn't have uh, any, or certainly doesn't have a robust uh, simulation curriculum, think about it. Think about trying to get support from your program director, from your chair, from your institution to get this started, because uh, we certainly have the experience here of seeing how uh, incredible an impact it's had on our, our curriculum and on our, our learners. Well, this has been really great. And I think that's a, a great place to end in the sense of saying, you know, this, the, the emphasis on this and how important it is and, and, and that people really should be paying attention to this. And, and I'm sure we'll see more of it in the future. All right. So before we move on to our random recommendations, I just want to make sure everyone knows that Adam and Christina are really not only expert at this, but they're happy to help other people who want to start these programs. So if you're interested, we'll put their email in the show notes. You are welcome to email them, get in touch, and they are really fantastic about helping places get this kind of a program going. So don't hesitate to do that. All right. So let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Uh, I don't know if you guys have a joint one or if you each want to make one, but what would you recommend that the audience check out? Well, I'll start. I think as a random recommendation to fully get an idea of the concept of how simulation can be beneficial and to help you along with it to be a better sim participant. It's an older movie. It's not for everybody, but I highly recommend watching The Blair Witch Project, the original Blair Witch Project. Um, and the reason why is because uh, this is one of the first examples in the public eye where actors transitioned into fully immersed participants. And when you watch the movie, you recognize that what you're seeing is not people acting you're seeing people behaving in real life. They suspended their disbelief, not that they were watching a movie, but that they were in a movie. And then it, what they really thought and what they really did and the way they really behaved came out. Critical, critically important idea to becoming a better sim participant. And this is a major influence into how we have established our philosophy of simulation by taking somebody and not just having them be an actor, but being a fully immersed participant. Um, a second thing that I would say is a totally random thing. Go visit a Disney park. Walt Disney is 
a genius or was a genius and, and like literally a magician. And his big vision of Disney parks were everybody is on stage. All the guests are actors in a big, huge stage. And again, at Disney, if you go in feeling manipulated or you don't like it, whatever, you're going to leave with a terrible experience. But if you go in and suspend your disbelief for a little bit, let yourself be exposed to the, quote, magic of Disney, you're going to have a great time, whether you like it or not. And there's so many, well, I, not whether you like it or not. You have to you have yeah. to want to have a good time. That's the point. But, but there's so many elements in Disney Park that contribute to this ability for you to suspend your disbelief and go to a Disney Park. Look at things like transitions between different worlds. Look for forced perspective in areas of how do you perceive something that isn't actually real, but it's real enough that you can have an experience of standing at the bottom of the Himalayas when you're looking up at this mountain, knowing that that mountain really is only, you know, 50 feet tall, but it looks like it's a mile high. Right. So these types of things. Visit a Disney park, immerse yourself in that a little bit. Again, be a willing participant. Expose yourself a little bit to the magic, and you're going to have a much better time. Um, there's a couple of uh, great books. Uh, one of them is called Slights of Mind uh, by uh, Stephen Macknick and Susan Martinez. Uh, it's basically what the neuroscience of magic tells us about everyday deceptions of how, how do we have cognitive errors? How do magicians manipulate the environment such that we can have a good experience uh, through an illusion or something like that? And probably the last thing there's a great book written a few years ago by a game theorist named Jane McGonigal. It's called Reality is Broken. And she talks about using games for purpose, using games, simulations, simulated environments for a very clear purpose, not just to have fun, but as a learning environment, as a purposeful, uh, intentional uh, thing for, for learning. But again, just like in any game, what makes a game fun is that everybody's in and you have to all be participants on it. And that's a, those are some some key points. Great, those, those are all fantastic recommendations. Thank you, um, Christina. Anything to add, or you're going to second to Adam's recommendations? I'll second to Adam's recommendations. Fair enough. I think. <laughs> um, well, I will just recommend uh, listeners know that I like and listen to the Daily Podcast from the New York Times, and they did a great episode a couple of days ago. Um, although by the time this comes out, it'll have been a couple of months ago. But check out the Daily episode about Serena Williams. It, it's really well done. It talks about kind of. Um, Serena, but also Venus and their family, and, and how um, how much they overcame to become the dominant force in tennis that they did, how they changed the game, and um, and kind of how uh, how difficult it was to make the change that they did. It was really interesting. Um, and for someone, I did not know a whole lot about it, so it was really, um, I learned a lot from that episode. It was really well done. All right, Adam and Christina, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fantastic. Thank you very thank you. much for having us. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAC Podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.